Sheath is a one-woman phenomenon and one of the most inspiring figures in dance music right now. From a Dutch-Indian background, she started out in the industry as a door girl at The Nest in Stoke Newington, before going on to present a long-running show on Rinse FM. Her first full-time job in the industry was working for Mixcloud, but her big break as a DJ was her debut performance on Boiler Room in August 2019, a set that has now been streamed more than two million times. Jotty had a good pandemic, turning the enforced social isolation to her advantage with interesting and innovative use of social media, her accounts going viral. She launched her own party, Homegrown, recently, and those shows sold out swiftly. Her Coco show sold out in three minutes. We talk here about her cultural background as the child of Dutch Sikh parents and her subsequent move to London and a career that appears to be one big happy accident. <laughs> when you moved from uh, Amsterdam to London yes. many years ago, what, what was your ambition? What, why did you move? To get away from my family. Really, That was really the number one goal. I come from uh, a very typical religious, somewhat traditional Punjabi Sikh family. And uh, growing up in Amsterdam, you're surrounded by everything that is the opposite of that and I finished uni so I was about 21 22 and I just needed to get away and I thought what is a worldly place that is still very close to home and somewhere where I could also get a decent education because that's what my mom would have that was the only thing reason that she would let me move out and that was London it was where the music that I loved come from and it was only 45 minutes on a plane away from my mom and dad and some of the highest education in the world. So uh, easy decision made. So if you're from your family, you said that your family are from Punjab, does that mean that you have relatives and friends and stuff of your family over here anyway? Did that kind of soften the blow for her? You would think that. I think I'm the only, I say this all the time, I think I'm the only Indian person in the world who has no relatives in London. I've got relatives in Leicester. I've got some in Manchester who I've only met for the first time about four months ago. I've got no family in London. It's weird. Okay. So you, you presumably plunged yourself into music once you got here. But was music... Uh, was that just a bit of fun or did you at the back of your mind think this might be my career? I never dared to dream that it could have been my career. I have been heavily intertwined with music as a consumer growing up. I think my very first email address was musicismylife11 at hotmail.nl. Like it's still that, that's always what I tell people. I was, I dreamed of music and actually my mom still has a booklet of when I was in first grade of primary school so I must have been about six years old and you had to draw yourself in the future and I'd drawn myself one with very big breasts so I don't I don't that was wishful thinking back then and on a stage performing with like a little headset a little Britney Spears microphone to hundreds of people so I think it was always a an unsung dream of mine an unspoken wish of mine but as I became an adult, a young adult, it was really never something I wanted to see or speak into existence. So I really moved here wanting to become deeper 
inter- intertwined with music as a consumer. And I ended up finding a job in the lane that was the nighttime economy. But even then, I didn't think it would become a job. I just thought it was so fun. And I wanted to become closer to it every way I could, but not to make a living out of it or, or become a, a, an artist or a DJ or a creative. No. So did, did your parents allow you to consume pop music? Were they, were they so strict that, that you couldn't do that? Or, or were you allowed to like buy pop records? And oh, no, absolutely. I mean, I grew up, my, uh, you know, uh, I watched MTV all day. And my mum, you know, my mum was a huge Bollywood fan. So I was, I grew up around Indian popular music. And then uh, I think... It, I was, must have been five, six years old when I was just running around the house listening to Celine Dion and Michael Jackson, Bob Marley. And my dad, my dad only knows about five Western artists. Tina Turner and James Brown are two of them. So he loved it when I listened to those records. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't something I was kept away from. Absolutely not. But it was also not something that was encouraged to dive into, especially not for a living. So who who were the artists that you worshipped as a teenager, apart from Celine Dion, obviously? I let me give you a wide scope because I, I'm I'm a proper '90s baby. I'm like American Pie era, so I idolized the likes of, you know, Dennis Brown and Supercat, but also Britney and Beyonce, but also Usher and Ja Rule, and then also Nirvana. And I loved my prodigy. I loved Bjork. I loved Daft Punk. Literally left to right, you name it, I was obsessed. And really like heavily studying it as well because I I grew up in the era of LimeWire and Kazaa where you could all of a sudden had all this weird access to very bad quality music. And if you would click on one link, it would open up a whole different world of all these different links of music that were associated with the one song you tried to illegally download and you could just deep dive into it for hours so i i listened to everything everything and the de la soul and tribe called quest but then also it it was just like frank sinatra it was weird billy holiday like my my bachelor's thesis no it wasn't my master's my master thesis was actually called strange fruit and it it was it, it looked into the emergence of jazz music, but relating it to the lynching culture in the southern states of America. So I, I've always been all over the place musically. And how, how did you know about Mixcloud? Because I, I think that was your first job in the industry, right? F- a full time job, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, funnily enough. I, at that point, had been a door girl for years. I had started a radio at that point on Rinse FM. I had uh, dipped my f- toes in curating events for Boiler Room part-time. And I've done a lot of uh, f- fundraising events, you know, that were centered around music. And it wasn't until one of my best friends, Andy LeMay, who a lot of people might know from being one of the main people behind Dimensions and Outlook Festival, and um, he called me and he said, oh, there's this listing for a job within brand partnerships at Mixcloud. And I knew of the platform Mixcloud because, you know, that's where I listened to NTS. And I said, brand partnerships, what's that? And he goes, no, no, don't worry about it. It's basically everything you've already been doing for fun, but 
you know, full time as a job. And that's how I kind of, you know, applied for the first time and started getting to know people who worked at Mixcloud. So what? So you said you were already on Rinse FM. Yeah. We, we did you have a show on Rinse FM already? Or yeah, I did. I and because originally you did it as a duo, didn't you? Yeah, it started off as a, a, my good friend Ellie, who I knew from being a door girl in Dalston. She had got on her own show, a presenter show, as we would call it in traditional radio. So not playing your own music, but being more of a personality. And she had gotten a very early Saturday morning slot on Rinse FM. And I think she herself and her team thought it was felt a little bit stale. So they wanted to bring in another person. But in order for it to feel organic, they suggested she brings in someone she really gets on with and is chatty with in a very organic way. And so she asked me. And, that's, and then I think by the fourth time she overslept and I had to do it myself. And before you knew it, she said... I don't even really want to get up that early on Saturday mornings. Take it. And that's how I started. And so, uh, obviously, that is DJing. It's a different form of DJing, but yeah. it's very much what DJs do. Um, d- did did you take to that like a, a duck to water? Because I, I have a feeling that you kind of one of those people that fell into DJing rather than being a lifetime ambition. I fell into every single thing I do. That's the story of my career is I just fall into things and then just absorb it so quickly, fall in love with it. And then I have this ambition to become the best, not compared to anybody else, but the best that I can be at that thing. And so the same happened with radio. It just everything clicked because I started, like I said, I was a presenter. So I had to play music that I necessarily wouldn't have picked myself. And what I noticed was I started sneaking in my own songs at the end of the show or midway through the show. And I noticed that playing other people's music and being able to talk about it and maybe turn into a non-fan into a fan was something that got me really excited. So it just, it just I was like a sponge when it came to radio. And how did you go from that to to playing music out in, in clubs? It was because of Rinse FM shows being uploaded on SoundCloud, which is obviously available to everyone globally for free. And because I played a certain type of music that wasn't really covered that much seven, eight years ago in London specifically on radio, I noticed that I grew a very organic small but niche and loyal following in regions like Brazil, Korea, Japan, East Coast, Chicago, lots of regions out anywhere basically outside of the UK. And I used to get a lot of requests saying, oh my God, I love this music that you play and no one on radio really knows these artists but you. So if you ever come around to where I live, I'd love to hear you play. And my usual response was, well, I don't know how to actually play quote-unquote, air quotes, really DJ. And then the more this happened, the more people would actually tell me, Jyoti, like, I'm, we're getting booking requests for you. Even Genius, who owns Rinse, he'd say, people are always asking me to, to bring you to them, to their parties, and I always have to tell them you don't know how to play. And it wasn't until my good friend, Jam Supernova, who at the time didn't have her BBC Six show yet. She was on One Extra, and she was already in DJ, as we know it, like a club DJ and throwing events. And she did an event for Peckham Rye Festival at Bussy Building. And she had booked Addison Groove, 
as her headliner and she said, I want you to open up. I said, I don't know how to play. She goes, well, sucks for you. You've got two weeks. Just play what you always play on radio. That's why I want you. Don't do anything fancy. Fade in, fade out and just set the tone for the night. And then that's what I did. And I was so bad. I cried afterwards. And that gave me the inspiration to want to get better. And that's how it all kicked off. How many years ago was that? That is five and a, this summer it'll be six years since I learned what the play button does. <laughs> yeah, because I didn't literally, I didn't, I had a boyfriend at the time who knew how to DJ and I literally asked him, I said, I've booked the, the pre-record room at Rinse after my show. Show me how you actually get music out of speakers. I didn't know because when I was doing the Rinse show, I was doing it from the mixing desk from the actual system, the software system in the, in the computers. So I never used the CDJs to DJ. And I had to be shown from the start. Matter of fact, I asked Genius first, and he got so impatient with me because I didn't know what queuing meant. And he was like, no, I didn't know you were this beginner. I, 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 if we continue to do this, I'm going to make you cry because I'm getting frustrated. And I got, was getting really upset because he kept yelling at me. Did you acquire it in order to kind of learn? No, I didn't have my own equipment until lockdown. So about, I think May 2020 is the first time I bought my own controller. I just used to try to book the pre-record room at Rinse one or two hours once a week after my shows and get as much practice in. And then I literally, I always tell this to people, what I used to do was watch people DJ at home like on on YouTube and then if when I was going out partying on the weekend tried to just see over the over the decks what people were doing with their hands and then just mem like memorizing things so when I had those one or two hours to myself at Rins I would try to copy things that I had visually seen but with my own music so I didn't have that much access to practice and I'm, I'm definitely the product of learning on stage because I just started getting booked everywhere and I had to just I, I just had to act like I knew how to DJ in front of people. And what has that kind of um, journey taught you about DJing in a club? Because it's obviously that there are connections between radio because you're playing music that you like, and but 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 how you connect the music is much more complex and, and more immediate. I'm wondering how you how you kind of dealt with that. I think I've learned very quickly how to read a crowd. And also how to fix things very quickly. I think if I had had all the time to practice at home, I would have become... You see this a lot, actually. A lot of people who focus a lot on the skill, the practical skills, what you notice is that maybe not always are they very well at reading a room and changing what is happening in a room. And I think because I never had the comfort and the knowledge and the technical skills and knowing that that was how I could wow a room I got very good at looking at people seeing what made them happy and trying to play on that and kind of control the energy in a room and that's what DJing uh, out so quickly in front of crowds way before I was actually ready taught me how to Almost, I don't want to say fake it till you make it because there's nothing fake about it. I was really doing it and I was really, you know, doing my job hard and well and trying to be the best. But it taught me how to just take, be, 
presented with a problem and trying to fix it there and there, there and then on the spot. I don't know if that makes sense. Does that make sense? It it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, because you don't need to do that on radio. That's the big difference. Because in ra- on radio, you are in charge, and you can't physically see who's tuned in. So you feel more comfortable. You feel very much you set the tone and either someone can tune in and decide to come with you or they tune out and they can just switch to another channel whereas where you're physically in front of people that option isn't there and you just well th- have there's to there's it a out. lot of cooperation involved in djing in a club it's really yeah. a symbiotic relationship between the dance floor and you so it so it's much more talking to each other effectively or yeah. you know not not literally talking but communicating with each other about what you want and where you want to go and um, obviously when you first start DJing, those really, really bad gigs are the, are the gigs that really teach you a lot and the good gigs don't teach you anything. Absolutely. You learn how to have a conversation because radio is a monologue. No one's talking back. And DJing to people, whether you can physically see them or not, you know, whether you're on a big stage far removed from people or you're hidden in a corner and you're surrounded by the people and there's no light shining on you, it is still very much a dialogue because... People don't have to see you in order to let you know whether you're making them happy or not. And that's, I learned that the hard way. And I think that's also why only almost six years into my DJ career, I'm not that scared to be thrown in front of audiences I've never played to before because I know I can, I can meet them halfway. Put me in any situation and I'll, I'll at least convert half of the room into liking what I'm doing. And ha- have you done quite a lot of touring internationally so far? T- t- tell me about some of your uh, adventures and, and how different crowds and dance floors are in different countries. Oh, yeah, I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky. I feel like a lot of people, because in lockdown I had like a viral moment and things exploded Um, a lot of people tend to think that maybe that's when my journey started. But because I've had that beautiful niche audience around the world 2019 is when I really started traveling to New York LA played in Cape Town played in Asia played in like Bangkok Kuala Lumpur lots of places in India and all around Europe and I think what I notice is that people are people wherever you go I just think if there's one thing that any and every DJ could tell you is that the places where we have the most choice the energy can often, not in all cases, can be uh, a little bit tame, held back, because, you know, they've seen it before and they will see it again. And then the further away you go, and I don't mean necessarily the further away from us, but more further away from uh, ecosystems and, you know, this whole foundation of a, a, a in and out of anyone and any sound and anything you want in any environment you want the further away you get from that the more explosive the energy is so for example when i played like in kuala lumpur even though they have lots of nightlife but they don't really get to see the you know the rinse fm djs that often i mean you get it's just like balls through the walls and just sweat dripping from the from the ceiling and no one wants to go home and actually matter of fact because Policing isn't as strict, you know, with the council as it is in London. When you get to play a show in a city like that and the crowd doesn't want you to leave, the bar owner, the club owner can say, well, then don't leave. We just go on till seven in the morning or eight or nine because life is a bit looser there. And I think that's what for me makes it always a little bit more fun. Like I'm about to go back to Asia in two weeks and I'm 
I'm like, I can't wait because I already know what energy I'm going to walk into. And those are often the nights where you think, I felt so free because people just want you there and they are ready to be taken onto a journey. And that's not to say that we don't have that here back home as well, but you know, it's a little bit more restricted and it's a little bit more by the playbook and by the rules. So I would say some of my favorite gigs have definitely been, I think South Africa and certain parts of Asia have been my, my favorite places to play. You, you you mentioned the pandemic and and obviously you were doing you were you, you had a lot of activity going on during the pandemic. Yeah, can and, you get rid and, of me? <laughs> uh, I'm just wondering how um, conscious that was, or is that just the fact you were cooped up and bored at home? Y- you know, you you were super active on Instagram, and obviously I would regularly tune in because I was <laughs> yeah. at home bored as well. <laughs> And, yeah. and, you know, I think your personality is just so suited to that kind of medium and, and not everybody's like that. But I'm just wondering, you know, w- what was your experience of the pandemic? I had my like great awakening during the pandemic. It was a f- it was a mixture of both. I think it was a little bit of I'm bored and I'm not going to get sad. I'm not allowing myself to get sad. I am also very scared and I don't know where money is going to come from. But I have these tools to at least make me feel less lonely. Then you can bring in an extra layer of I want to be less lonely and practice DJing. And then that turns into live streaming. And then all of a sudden you notice, hey, this is an excellent, I don't want to call it a marketing tool, but a way to connect with people who haven't been able to discover me physically. And then that became a great drive and motivation to keep using these tools that are available to me, to us, more and more. So it started off as just a very innocent, I'm just bored and I want to not go crazy. And then it turned into, hey, not only am I actually earning money with this, but I'm getting to form this deeper connection with people who hopefully I will one day connect with again on the dance floor and get to take them with me on this journey musically and show them all the different sides of me. And it just, I, I just noticed how all these different platforms could lead to different things I wanted to delve into. So I was using my Twitch in a completely different way than I was using my Instagram. Then I made a TikTok, which I just discovered is a whole different audience. And they consume content and music in a very different way and I'm not someone who shies away from things that are foreign to me I can find things very scary but once I dive in I just go in all all the way and now here we are well out of the pandemic and you still can't get rid of me on those platforms because they really play a huge part in what I do so for for listeners that don't know about your pandemic experience can you explain some of the things that you did actually do I'd I'd be yes (laughs) don't judge me I did a lot so obviously I was continuing doing the radio show from home and what I would do was um often when I was pre-recording my radio shows in my kitchen I would jump on uh, IG live and let people see the way I do it I also had a twitch account which at that time was a big gaming platform um, and I used it also for DJ sets to the point where I started throwing a weekly party called Club Jotiana 
and it would be Saturday nights on Twitch with a very active chat room. I would be all dolled up, dressed up as if I was going to the club. I had a disco ball in the kitchen, drinks at the go, and we were playing shot o'clock. By the end of a live stream, I would be hammered very happy that my bed was just a few steps away because I would wake up almost not remembering what happened the, the night before. And I was also uh, posting like loads of tips and tricks videos on TikTok, made a tips and tricks series on YouTube for beginning DJs on how to navigate the industry from a perspective that's maybe not as common as we would know it. Um, uh, Mixcloud, I was just uploading mixes. Soundcloud, I was doing the same. But I was also, for example, doing a open mic night on my IG Live. I wanted to discover artists that I'd never heard before and uh, potentially play them on my radio show. So I would go on Instagram Live. People could literally join the live and perform a piece of music, poetry, whatever it was, play a beat. And then the people that were tuned in could just comment whether they thought it was worthy of air being aired on Rinse FM or not. So I was just everywhere. And sometimes even non-music related, I'd do blind dates, Wednesday nights. I would also get all dolled up, have a candle on my dinner table and a glass of red wine, and people could join me and take me on a date. And if the chat thought that that person was not worthy, then we would hang up on them and call in a new person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Talking about it now, I'm like, Jesus Christ. I was uh, very active. So so how well did the Blind Date series go? I mean, did you find true love? Uh, not through the Blind Dates. I did find true love. However, he never joined the call. I did. Do you know what's so funny? I did find a, some really good artists via the Blind Dates. I think the Blind Dates eventually led into the open mic series because some guys were just dialing in and then wanting to just perform. And then that sparked an idea to jump on another platform. And we did have some uh, friends of mine who are loved vocalists uh, call in and just perform very beautiful R&B songs for, for the ladies that were tuned in. So it was fun. It was really fun, actually. Sometimes and I wish I was single again so I could do it without, <laughs> without any uh, moaning in my ear, you know. Have you discovered people that you've subsequently played on, on your show or DJed Absolutely. with? Absolutely. Absolutely we did. And matter of fact, uh, to the point where I now still have a monthly Twitch stream called Jotty Radio. And it's literally join the stream, send me in a private message, a Dropbox link, a WeTransfer link, something to your work. We play it live on air and the chat gives constructive criticism feedback we have a lot of producers in the chat who will say hey maybe take off the hi-hat or turn or turn up the vocals or something like that and after every stream we usually walk away with 10 to 15 songs that make it onto radio that same week that that's such an, a nice idea and, and it's a really powerful way of using the internet because um Nowadays, you can you can live anywhere in the world and and connect with people that are involved in music in a way that that there used to be all these gatekeepers that would stop you and and um, I, I mean that must be I mean it must be quite satisfying from your point of view that you're so able good. to do that so good and you know even before the pandemic before I started live streaming I used to pride myself on having a radio show that featured so many artists that would only have hundred well I say only is subjective but a hundred followers on SoundCloud and never 
had their music played on any radio show and it just it almost became very normal to me i thought it was strange that other people had you know radio shows on radio one where everything had come out on a major label i thought then what's the point of your radio show because this is just being pushed on the friday by everyone and everyone uh, and on every platform so this was a new way for me to push forward all these artists you had never heard of and see where it goes. And I think I have a really nice track record of having had guests on my show that then years later win Grammys or have sellout shows around the world. And this is just a new way of doing that. And it's very interactive, and I like that. Because sometimes there are songs that I do not like, but the chat loves it. And then there's still a way for them to discover it instead of just relying on what I do play on the radio or don't. This is something... You know, you can have your own opinion. And even if I say, hey, I'm not going to play it because I don't really feel it. If you love it, there's a Spotify link or there's a SoundCloud link or the Bandcamp link to it and you can enjoy it at home. Okay, so um, go, going on from this, can you can um, can you tell me about your your legendary Boiler Room uh, performance? Because you'd been you'd been a host on Boiler Room for quite a while by the time that you did. Was it 2019 that you did the... Yeah. the August 2019. And I, and I had a look again today and it's like two, two, over 2 million views now. I mean, that's astonishing. It's nuts. It's nuts. Like, if you think about it, can you imagine playing to 2 million people? Of course not. So I think sometimes, you know, we live in a time where huge numbers have become very normalized and that's okay. I understand that. But I think it's really nice to sometimes remind yourself that, I, you know, I love the saying... If you think 20 likes on Instagram is not much, imagine walking down the street and 20 people telling you you look nice. That would change. That would change your month. So I I tried to think of it that way. And that 2019 boiler room was, we never thought this was going to happen. I mean, my manager and I, when the offer came in, it was actually by my good friend Ahad, Ahad the Dream, who uh, is a respected label owner, DJ, producer here in London. He, I think at that point, was uh, on his way out from Boiler Room, but he still wanted to do a few final shows, and he did them well because he is also the man behind the viral Sherelle moment uh, of her Boiler Room. And he had booked me for one of his parties a few month, months prior, called me up, and he said, Jodi, I'm doing a Boiler Room. It's a carnival warm-up, and I want to have four DJs that aren't the typical carnival DJs, but they do embody sounds that we could associate with carnival carnival and just like global sounds. And I think you would be perfect. I called my manager, Henry, and Henry and I both agreed this is way too soon. And But if I want to do it, we should do it and just get ready for some negative comments online, but to handle it the best we can. So we said, okay. And I had assumed, because normally boiler room, boiler room nights were kind of organized in a way where the smallest and the newest act goes first and you work your way up to the biggest. Ahad wanted it other way around. He wanted the more established names first and then he wanted the newcomers towards the end of the night because everyone knows the end of the night is when people are the loosest, the more free and all the inhibitions have gone out the window. So the crowd is more lively and essentially you get the better set of the night regardless of what you're playing because of the energy in the room. And he wanted me to close. And I was so, I was mortified. Didn't know, didn't know how I was going to be perceived, but okay, it was in the office. So it wasn't to a huge crowd. It was just friends and family. 
I played the set. You know, I for I for one can't watch back the set because technically I'm just like, what the hell am I doing? The mixing is just like barely barely gets by. But it it was such a moment because there I am, freshly broken up with my boyfriend a week before that. I was it was three days before my 29th birthday. It was the most beautiful week in London. It's the week of Notting Hill Carnival when it's 30 degrees and we're all just London comes alive in a way where as if Tories don't exist, basically, that's what that week feels like. And it's the best week all in the whole year. For me, it's bigger than Christmas. And there's this room, a tiny sweaty room with a red light and all these beautiful black and brown girls sweating, dancing, no inhibitions with a DJ who looks like she's really enjoying being there. Now, I know that all those things together is a recipe for something great, but we just didn't think that a year later when the whole world was locked inside that that was going to be that moment of joy that people found. And I think that's just the catalyst to it all. This, the fact that that set got rediscovered when everyone was stuck at home with nothing to look forward to. And I don't know, it just exploded. It exploded. Um, did it not make much of an impact at the time? Because there's, there's something very joyful about the whole, it you did. know, the kind of, at, you can feel the atmosphere in the room. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I'm definitely downplaying it. I think uh, a week after, in the first seven days, it was already on 300,000 plays. And I think before going viral, it was over half a million. So it had a big impact, but I feel like it had a big impact amongst people who were already familiar with the sounds and the music and I think what happened in lockdown was it reached the masses it reached the mainstream audiences in the world which was never really my intention and don't get me wrong as grateful as I am for people loving that set it did put me in front of an audience that was never really one that I wanted to reach or wanted to see on my dance floor that sounds very negative I don't mean it in that way but I don't play to cater to mainstream audiences. So it was also a very interesting moment because after it went viral, I was left with two options and it was either become a viral moment and let it pass by or uh, be, well, actually three options. The second option was to go with it, go with the flow and end up doing things that I didn't really want to do, but that's where the numbers are taking you. Or the third, and which is what we did, we very carefully navigated a way to not completely lose the interest of the mainstream audience and still feed them bits and bobs that they could enjoy, but still hone in into my more diverse, open-minded, open format, people who, you know, can listen to Larry Hurd, but also to, to I don't know, G-Unit on the same day because they get it, that audience. And I think I've come out of it now a couple of years later, balancing, like walking that fine line very carefully, very tread, like just treading it very carefully and having complete control over what I do and who I play to and what I play. But it took a lot of work. A new interview, a new interview every, month every month with a DJ, with history, a DJ podcast. history podcast. So have you, have you done any gigs in places like Glastonbury where you're playing to an audience that isn't necessarily your audience and I'm, I'm wondering how, how you how you work 
your sets on in a situation like that because obviously I've done quite a lot of those and you have yeah. to you have to tweak what you do to make them work for sure I haven't done glass though not that we haven't been offered I am taking my sweet time with making my first lasso appearance but I've definitely I've done the last summer I've done a huge um, festival circuit and I think what I am very blessed with is that I truly enjoy a lot of music and I have been very well traveled I'm also like I have a very European state of mind so I do kind of know when I play somewhere what the audience might be like so I always tend to do a little bit of homework before every set and like I said those at the start of the conversation you know that knowing how to work a room I know that when I'm playing to a big festival crowd that I'm gonna have to pick a certain end of my music taste rather than when I'm playing a basement somewhere in Berlin where people have bought tickets just to see me so I tend to not go as deep but still make it really fun and enjoyable. And what I tend to do is I don't give people the roots of the music genres that I'm playing. I give them the more accessible and the more palatable songs of those genres that I want to slowly draw them into. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, you totally. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't, I think you play a kind of a, not just you, but one plays yes. a, a slightly more commercial version of, of what you might play in a in an underground club. Exactly. And I think I have a lot of fun doing that. I, what I'm really enjoying at the moment, looking forward to this year, is that I have so many different gigs coming up where I get to show completely different sides of me. And I'm finding real joy to the point where I don't even mind you know, sometimes you do a, like a fashion party during fashion week and that's, you know, it's not your dream crowd. And I'm still finding joy in that because it allows me to play a full guilty pleasure set. Why not? Because I know that tomorrow I'll be back to just playing like 160 jungle in some basement somewhere. And so enjoy this moment because you won't be able to do it again tomorrow. So can can you give me some examples of the different types of sets that you're you're talking about? Uh, for example, this just looking forward to what's happening now. Um, I'm about to go to Bangkok to play a fashion party. And there I will play a lot of songs that are hybrid, like fusions of like Afrobeats meets R&B and pop. And then if I go into the 125 tempo, it will be the more like the funky and the garage. Lots of remixes. I feel like remixes do really well, right? It's a vocal you recognize, but maybe a beat you don't. But then from there, I go straight onto my Australia tour. Now the Australia tour is half big festival stages where I will keep it very up-tempo and I will dip in and out of more in-depth songs but then take them back to something that they know. And then I've got the club shows. And on the club shows, I will play, for example, a lot more in the middle of my set. I might go into some Lover's Rock. I might play some, like, 90s hip-hop tunes that, you know, some of the kids there have never really experienced consciously. And then I might end it with some, you know, Mia archives or something that's more sped up and... Maybe what they didn't expect from me, but I'm going to let you know that I do love 140 and I do love 160 and maybe a little bit of dubstep in there. Whereas if, I, if I'm playing a festival, my dubstep song would probably be KDB and Magnetic Man, you know, slightly more accessible. Whereas when I'm in the club, I'll go, okay, maybe just bang it on his own. 
maybe you haven't heard 27 bass lines. Well, you will today. And from there, festival season starts in the UK. But I'm also doing Circle Loco with Skrillex at DC 10. What you're going to see on that side is, okay, I know if I'm playing with Skrillex, we're going to go 130 and up, but I'm going to make it sexy. I'm going to give you Brazilian. I'm going to give you South African. I'm going to give you Baila Funk sped up, which can really counteract the more typical 4x4 tech bro audience that is there. But I'm going to give you so much bass that you're not going to be able to resist it. You're going to love it. And you're going to finally learn how to move your hips a little bit just rather than your fist. So these are all like different ways I get to experiment and play around. I the, the DC 10 show is not even announced yet. So this is a little, that's going to be a huge announcement for me because if you look at who have played in the last few years, you know, it's like Peggy Goo, Martina's brothers and Seth Troxler. And then it's like, well, actually no, Jyoti is also going to play DC 10. So um, how important do you think personality is when you're DJing? Even though you don't talk on a microphone, it, it always struck me as a lot of the more interesting DJs have kind of, um, they have big personalities and, and so their music reflects that. And I'm just wondering, you'd strike me as someone who's got quite a big personality and I'm just wondering, <laughs> is that an important factor or, or am I just kind of making it up? No, I think we live in a time where we're definitely seeing it more and more. I think... All sorts of DJs have always existed, but we didn't get to see all of them. And now we live in the times of social media, so we visually get to see the people that play the songs. And for example, I myself, I enjoy all sorts DJs. I like the awkward Ben UFO, like just looking down. I love that because the next day I want to, you know... You know what I find really interesting? When... There's always people nowadays, especially on Twitter, you know, if you really want to become miserable, you go to Twitter and you just see what DJs have to say on Twitter. I always tell people, don't take it seriously, delete the app because it really is not that relevant. But what I find really interesting is that the slightly older men who like to moan on Twitter, they have a big, um, they have very strong opinions on DJs who dance nowadays. However... My favorite thing to tell them is, but what about Mr. G? And then it goes quiet because, oh my God, don't you bloody love it when Mr. G steps away from his vinyl and then starts giving you a whole footwork performance. For some reason, then it's okay. But just because we're dancing to songs you might not know, we're dancing in a way that you might find a little bit too provocative, all of a sudden, you're not focusing on the music. So I always try to tell people the whole big personality thing, it's always been there. However, it's now just magnified. In my case, does it work? Yes. Is it forced? No. I just am a real, I've been on the dance floor for 30 years of my life. I find it very hard to not dance when around music. If I have an off day or I'm tired or I'm not feeling well, I will be less of a big personality. Because it's not forced. I don't force it. But I do also like hearing after a show, you know, I'll get DMs. I get voice notes from people who come and they say, I don't normally listen to the music that you play, but I love watching you. And that that's, you know, that for me, that's like, well, it's a win-win. I mean, I hope you discovered new music that you like. And I'm so glad that my animated self could lure you in to discover that music. 
I think that's a sign of a, a good DJ, personally. You know, yeah. you kind of, they dig what you're doing, even though they don't necessarily listen to the music you play. That's the be- uh, that's the biggest compliment you can give me, is to say, oh, I came to Homegrown with a friend, don't normally listen to whatever you're doing, but loved it, had the time of my life. I think that's the perfect night out. Surprising <laughs> and unpredictable. You, you recently started your own night, didn't you? And um. Is that is homegrown, it homegrown? Yeah. Okay, so you did you did some some parties in the UK, and I think you did them one in Amsterdam, and we did bars two in Barcelona, two in Amsterdam, and it was supposed to be three in London, but it ended up being four. Um, m- where, whereabouts in London did you do it? The first one was at Color Factory because I wanted the London ones to give you a different experience. Every edition had to feel completely different. So the first one we kept it close to home. Black-owned, community-focused venue, no faff, no frills, just a simple club. Good sound, easy layout, easy to get to, not in central London, but like in somewhere where, you know, the cool kids like to hang out. Not an overwhelming capacity. It's about 750-800. Then the second one, but it sold out so fast. And it was my first ever own party. And I hadn't DJed in London about eight months up until that point. And I didn't know the demand had gone that crazy. So from the first one in Color Factory, which was amazing, we then moved to Earth on Stoke Newington Road because my journey in London starts as the Dorgal at the nest across the road from Earth. And I wanted to come home to where it started because it was 10 years, exactly 10 years after I'd moved to London. What I liked about Earth was it's a rave venue because there's nowhere to sit. There's nowhere to go for some breath of fresh air. You're either in or you're out. Sound system was crazy. This was before they had soundproofed it. So it was not good for the eardrums, but good for the, oh, it was just amazing. And, you know, we had the option to rebuild the stage entirely. So I didn't, I don't like being on stages. So I had the crowd all across, all around. And it was just red lights, crazy flashing lights, insane sound. You're committed, and if you can't handle it, you have to go home. And for the last one, we did two there, actually, because the first one sold out so quickly, we had to add an extra date because of demand. And then we closed the year at what I want to give an iconic venue, and a venue when I would normally not throw a rave, but something I would want to show the industry Someone like myself can do something here and I can sell it out and I can do it without any big promoter, any big marketing, nothing. So we did Coco because it's where I've seen Robert Glasper. It's where I've seen, it's where I've seen everyone I, I love. I've seen Erica there and that was insane. And that felt like, I just remember during my set, it was sold out. Every balcony all the way to the ceiling was filled with people and I just remember before my set, I just got, I grabbed the microphone and I said, we fucking did it. Sorry, can I swear? Yeah. Sorry. I just said to the crowd, I was like, we fucking did it. We sold out Coke in three minutes, may I add. I know, it's astonishing. And that was just my opportunity to give a middle finger to the systems that people think have been put in place and that you have to go through in order to achieve something like that. That was just my big old, no, you don't. You don't. You just need to focus on people who will actually 
buy the tickets to sell out your party. You don't have to focus on big time agents and promoters who are having second thoughts whether they should book you or not. The worth of who you are is in who wants to be on the dance floor with you. And I think that was just a perfect example. And, you know, that was a nice venue that did give you opportunities to sit down, to go on the terrace, take a breather, have like plush red velour cushions to sit on. I wanted to give all three different venues a completely different experience of a London night out. So which DJs um, inspire you? Oh, so many. I've, I'm going to just give you a few examples of people that you would know and for different reasons. I love Josie Rebel. I love Josie. I'm obsessed with Josie because I think we were, funnily enough, we were talking about it on Twitter today. We, she's completed the game. She's completely removed herself from any digital presence. And she's just doing the shows that she wants killing them and you know proper Tottenham girl like she knows her electronic world but then she knows her reggae and her dub and you can see she's like this melting pot of a London girl and what their sounds and ear it has has become accustomed to but then I I really took a lot of lessons watching Benji B and what he did with deviation I've learned so much from Benji B and then there's you know, I mean, who doesn't want to be in the rain in Croatia watching a five-hour Theo Paris set and just close their eyes and dream away and just forget about how long you've been there because it's just this soulful journey you go on to. Those, I just like DJs who have taught me something about controlling people through sound. I like DJs that have introduced me to music that I thought I wouldn't care about and then I become obsessed with, but only when they play it. So any DJ that's done that for me, even like, you know, I've learned a lot from Scream as well, like some of the more <laughs> some of the more controversial figures in, in the UK industry. I've learned so much from watching Scream. I've also learned what not to do from a lot of them, you know, and I've learned being a door girl and being able to watch people go through their careers and seeing their mistakes and seeing the difficult positions they've been in, learned a lot. So, yeah, that's a few of them. Do you, do you think the position of women uh, in the industry has, Im has improved much over the past five to ten years? Do you, think, do you think there are more opportunities now? Hell yeah. I think if you were to ask me all the details I looked up to prior to uh, ten years ago, they would all be men. All the names are men. And now I can just give you a whole list of some of my, my also, and it's not because they're women, but like the majority of my favorite DJs right now are women or identify as women. And I couldn't tell you why that is. It's, it's nothing to do with the fact that they're women. They're just taking over now because they're more visible now because there are more opportunities. We are in a time where we are you know, lifting each other up more. We are giving more um, breathing space for talent to nurture itself, to become better, to become seen, to become heard, and to play around. And what you notice is, I've always said this, my friend and I, if my friend happens to be a man, and we play the exact same set 
at the exact same venue at the exact same time, our sets will still feel completely different because there's a different energy when a woman plays. And what you see is that it translates into the dance floor. You will automatically see more women that feel braver to take a few steps to the front. Well, in my case, the girls just elbow boys out the way when I start playing. And I love seeing that as well. And that just creates for a whole different night, a whole different experience. So I think we're living in an amazing time. There's always work to be done, but I don't want to dwell on things that are not ideal. It's the music industry after all. Things will never be ideal. We're dealing with big egos, big personalities, at some point, big money. And when those things combine, things go wrong. But what I like seeing is that things have become so much better than when I was on the dance floor. And the worst thing is, when I was younger, I didn't even feel the need to see women DJing because I didn't even think that that was something I was lacking. And so now when I play on lineups and I see little 18, 19-year-olds on the dance floor, I think, ah, I wish I could see this when I was younger. But at that time, I didn't even miss it because I didn't know it was possible. So I think it's a great time for women. Do, do you think women DJs play differently to men? And, and if so, what, what, can you define what that difference is? Yeah, I think a, a, a feminine energy is always uh, more careful. I think, I think women, we're generalizing now, right? So let's just state that. This, these are general observations. But I think the majority of women, I think there's still a lot of pressure. There's still a lot of fear. You know that whether we want to, Admit it or not, let's just say it how it is. When a woman is playing, we look 10 times harder. We listen way more carefully. Everything is under a magnifying glass. And I think because we are aware of that, we tend to be more careful, be a little bit, you know, a mistake is, is costs us a lot more. It's more expensive for a woman to make a mistake on the decks when people are watching. So I am, um, and I think it's a little bit more love. There's a little bit more love and TLC in a set. No matter, even if the the set is just pumping hardcore, there's a lot more love in it and a more, I don't know, storytelling. I think. Okay, final question: what, What's the best gig you've ever done? That I've ever done? Yeah. Oh, do you know what? The best gig I've ever, I'm not going to say the best crowd I've ever played to, but the best gig I've ever done was very early into my career and is one that I think of a lot. I ended up a year into DJing playing the only unsponsored stage at Melt Festival in Germany. Melt Festival is kind of like the sonar of Germany and uh, it's owned by a queer couple, I believe, and I didn't know that when I attended because I just remember thinking, wow, this audience is so mixed and so amazing and all these acts are like, there's so many gay acts performing on the, on the main stage and I, I just thought it was incredible. And I'm, the stage I played was, at, was overlooking a lake and I played a sunset set and I actually did a full three hours of broken beat funk disco and soulful house and i think i ended it on a little bit of like fabio and groove rider but at that 
point, I'd never played a full set like that out to a crowd. I was still known for, you know, the crossover, future beats, R&B, dancehall stuff. And I did that, and I just remember feeling so much love. As the sun set, people were coming out of the lake that they'd been swimming in onto the dance floor, which was all grass and dirt. And it was, I think it must have been like a 1,000 people. And I think that set is one of my favorite sets I ever played because I really, I really experienced how for you as a DJ, your whole gig can change. As much as we like to control crowds, crowds can control us as well. And I feel like that evening I learned how, what a positive effect a happy crowd controlling you can have on how experimental you can get on the decks. And I played songs I would have never played before to a crowd and would have never thought of playing. And I just remember seeing these smiling faces. Everyone was also a bit more mature, a little bit older. And I also just learned I really enjoy playing to people who are all over 30. That's just my ideal crowd. I love young people. They are the main reason I get to do what I do. But I make it no secret that um, the older, the better for me in the crowd. And that was that was my favorite set, I think. That still gives me hope. Oh, 100%. 100%. But you know what? At Homegrown, a lot of uh, people bring their mums to Homegrowns. It's unreal. I, in the last year in the UK, I've met so many mums at my shows. It's, it's incredible. And they come with their children. And because they both love what I do because I play so much kind of throwbacks or, you know, a lot of the remixes have nostalgic uh, vocals on them. And it's just amazing to see because the, the mums know exactly what I need as a DJ behind the deck, what kind of behaviors I prefer on the dance floor. So it's, um, they're still, they're about, they are about, you just need to know where to find them. Big up the mums. Big up the mums. To be fair, I went to see Louis Vega out in it a little while ago and that just gave me that same feeling again i was just like oh my god i feel like i'm at southport weekend and this is my dream crowd <laughs> thank you so much that was brilliant thank you bill you have been listening, have been to, listening the to the dj history, history podcast, history podcast with, with bill brewster, bill brewster. Bill brewster. Bill brewster.